about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Bible reading, uh, Genesis chapter 3, then Andrew's going to come and preach to us. But in preparation for that, I think it's good for us to reflect on this psalm, Psalm 51. So Psalm 51 was written by David at a time when he was very conscious of his sin, sinfulness, and his deep need for forgiveness. And we too should feel the same way. So as you read this psalm, you can make this your prayer. So let's read this psalm through together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, Rachel's going to come and bring to us the reading from Genesis chapter 3. Good evening, everyone. Genesis chapter 3 is our Bible reading tonight. And you can find that in the pamphlet that you got on the way in. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig trees together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? 
The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's pray as we uh, think about this amazing, difficult part of Scripture. Lord, would you open our eyes this evening, not only to our guilt, but also to your grace. Amen. So... A post-apocalyptic movie or story is one in which the action is set sometime after some decisive catastrophe that has changed the face of life on Earth. A, a nuclear war has happened, an asteroid has hit, artificial intelligence suddenly took over and laid waste to humanity. I hope you recognize at least one of these, the scene from Terminator 2 of a classic. It's a post-apocalyptic movie. Now, Christianity has always held, the Christian tradition has always thought that actually we live in a post-apocalyptic world. There was a decisive catastrophe so that life now is lived in a world that has been laid waste. Only in Christian faith, this disaster happened right at the beginning. And it wasn't some massive war or explosion. It was the choice of the first human beings to transgress, to step over the the one boundary the Lord had given them. Over the next two weeks, our attention will be given to this original sin and its consequences. This week, we'll look at the event itself. Next week, we'll think about its aftermath. In a post-apocalyptic world, the obvious question is, what went wrong here? How did this happen? What, What disaster caused this? In the same way, the Bible's view is that we can't really understand our world or our lives if we do not understand this primal disaster. Humanity's original sin, you see, is not remote From any one of us. Its effects are still felt and it echoes through our lives continually. In this story, we don't just hear about something in the distant past. We hear about a failure that we repeat. We hear about a condition from which we need to be saved. But looking squarely at it is worth it. Because in the end, it will lead us to a better understanding of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Um, Genesis chapter 3, which is what we're looking at, it's it's printed in your outlines. Uh, I'll put it on the screen as well. It's a stunning piece of storytelling. So what we're going to do for most of this sermon is just take some time to read it and, and notice how it works and draw out some observations as we go. So let's begin then. 
uh, at verse 1. So at the, at the end of Genesis 2, if you were here with us last week or if you just turned back in the Bible or whatever, the very last verse says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. As chapter 3 opens, though, a new figure emerges and we get a, we get a sense that this is going to come unstuck. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. In the Hebrew, there's actually an interesting pun here that Genesis was originally written in Hebrew and you often can't translate things like jokes and puns. But um, the word crafty there sounds a lot like the word for naked. And it's a hint, I think, that that joyful picture, it's the first kind of sign of this theme, that joyful picture is in trouble. The serpent asks a question. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, if, if you uh, remember God's words in chapter 2, if you've been here for the series, or if you look back, there's nothing strictly wrong with this question, right? But by saying any tree, the snake is already actually putting a spin on God's words. What God said, if you remember back to chapter 2, what God said was that the man was free to eat from any tree in the garden. I any tree, he says. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But there is this one tree from which you must not eat. God's command, as we talked about, was actually a way of giving the man real freedom. But now the snake begins to put all the focus on the prohibition, what he's not allowed to do. It's almost like somebody coming along. Imagine somebody's just been taught to play chess, okay? And then somebody comes along and says, wow, did he really say the king is not allowed to move more than one square? That is so limiting. You know, it's, it's focusing on, it's not focusing on the domain of freedom, but just the prohibition. Now, the woman then corrects the snake. But her correction also, in a funny way, loses sight of what God said. Have a look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. What's interesting here is that addition. You must not touch it. Where did that come from? It's not there in God's original words at all. Again, there is this fixation, this preoccupation with the boundary, the limit. Why do we do this? Why do we human beings chafe so quickly when we're told that we can't or shouldn't do something? Why do we see what we can't have so much more vividly than what we can? Well, the snake's next move is the crucial one. It's to introduce doubt. Doubt about what the woman has heard and about God's motives. Have a look at verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The snake contradicts what God has said. Oh, no, you, you won't die. You won't die. What's interesting, though, is that there is a way in which the snake is still telling the truth. 
as we will see, as we do see, as the passage continues, the man and the woman don't. They don't just die when they eat the fruit, though they do die in the end. But that's the gap, you see. That's the gap that the snake uses to introduce doubt. He's able to contradict one way in which God's words could be taken, though it's not the only way. And by doing that, he opens a crack in the woman's trust in God. Maybe, maybe there is more going on here. Maybe God does have another agenda. Yeah, says the snake. Maybe God's scared of you. He doesn't trust you. He knows that if you eat this fruit, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Again, there's a sense in which that phrase is kind of true, right? That, that is what will happen in, if they eat, as we'll see. Their eyes will be opened. And in some sense, they will be like God, knowing good and evil. But the way these things will be true is not the way the woman is taking them. At the end of our passage, right at the end, the woman says, the serpent deceived me. And that is what is going on here. The serpent is tricking her. He is using a gap between the words at face value and what they actually mean, a gap that the woman doesn't yet see, he's using that to introduce doubt about God. It's not obvious in Genesis, but by the end of the Bible, it is clear that this figure of the serpent or the snake represents the devil. The book of Revelation calls the devil that ancient serpent. He is a spiritual enemy of God, the original source of evil in the world. It's a mysterious figure. The, the serpent is very odd in Genesis. Where, where did he come from? Why is he there? There's a lot that we don't know about the angelic backstory or whatever it is, but the Bible is clear that the devil is part of the picture of the world. And that the reality of evil does go beyond you and me and our mistakes. It also implies that we would be foolish to think we never had to worry about this stuff. The book of Revelation again says that the devil accuses God's people day and night. The apostle Peter, as we saw a few weeks ago, talks about Satan prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus himself called the devil the ruler of this world. And he said that he is a liar and the father of lies. You and I are up against a deceiver. Someone whose aim is to distort the truth and make us doubt it. But it's not all the serpent's fault here. The woman also lets herself be deceived. Because it should have been easy for her to see through this deception. It, should have, it shouldn't have been difficult to resist it. Because the woman knew something that ought to have made all the difference. She knew who God was. She knew that the one who had given this command was actually the one who had given her life. 
the one who had given her and the man to one another and who had given them the garden and the freedom they enjoyed and the beauty. And yet it's like none of that counts. The woman even changes the way she talks about God. This is a bit uh, subtle in the English, but it's, it's there. When the serpent says in verse 1, did God really say, that's actually the first time in the story that God has just been called God rather than the Lord God. And you'll see in the, in the English, I'm not sure if it's printed this way, but in, in any English Bible, the word Lord is printed in, in capital letters, and that's because in Hebrew, it's actually the personal name of God, Yahweh. And that's because it's, it's, it's an indication, you see, of relationship and intimacy. And yet now when the woman responds to the serpent, what does she call God? She just says, God. It's a sign, I think, that the, the reality of what she knows of God has, has just kind of sunk from her view. And the thing that looms larger now is this possibility that they, they might be missing out. This thought that God is not who he has seemed to be, that he might actually be hiding something from them. He might be refusing Something good, it is, it's seductive, it's, it's preoccupying. And so, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Oh, that last comment is so interesting. Her husband who was with her. What? Has he been there the whole time, silent? The story has not been going very long, this story that began in, in chapter 2, but that is already super weird. For Adam to be there, and I think that is the sense here, that he'd just been there the whole time. For him to be there but to be inactive just letting his wife act unilaterally, that's really odd. The woman was supposed to be his partner. They were in this together, and in a sense, he is the leader. To not object to the snake's distortions, to not point out the mistake about not touching the tree, to not at least talk about this most momentous decision. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'll take some fruit. At the very least, this is a total failure to take responsibility. What is this that happens here? What is it? Like that's what God says at the end. What is this that you have done? What is it? Why do they do it? You know, this act, I think it has many dimensions. And, and it's worth paying attention to the different dimensions. It shows us a lot about ourselves. At a surface level, it seems pretty simple, right? It's about pleasure. It looks good. They're hungry, or at least they could eat. This looks nice. Like when I see a chocolate in the cupboard, and I'm not really hungry, and I know it's not good for me. This is the kind of thing you have to start to think about when you hit, I have found, when you hit 40, 
right? I didn't have to think about it for a long time. I do now. See a chocolate? I'm not very hungry, but it does look good, and so I just eat it. And, and just like that, only much, much worse, there is a, a kind of thoughtlessness in this act. There is a, a careless inattention to what it is they're actually doing. And that inattention is really important here because what it means is that the more important features of what they're doing, right, the fact that this is the one thing God said not to do, they are allowed, that, that feature, those features, they're allowed to be crowded out by the much, much less important thought that, oh, that would be nice. I say they're allowed to be crowded out because, of course, that's not all that's going on. The woman and the man, it seems, they do want something else. Do you see, it says, the fruit was also desirable for gaining wisdom. Except wisdom is not quite the right word. It's not actually the main Hebrew word for wisdom that's used here. It's a word that normally means something more like insight or cleverness or just success. We're being pointed to the fact that what entices the woman and the man is not real wisdom, but something more like the promise of, 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 of mastery. What they're after is not wisdom in the sense of the knowledge that enables them to live truly well. Actually, they already had that. No, they want... I think they want power. They want the freedom not just to live well, but to decide what it means to live well. I think ultimately it's this desire for mastery, to be the boss to be in charge of good and evil. I think it's that that's decisive. And that's why they let themselves be deceived. Why they don't just reject the serpent's words. Why they let themselves notice and pay attention to the pleasure of the fruit rather than the command they've received and the one who gave it because they, they do want to be in charge. If there is a way to be more than they are somehow... They want it. Notice finally that there is a, a pride in this. There is an arrogance to this act. The thought doesn't even cross their minds. Or if it does, they brush it aside. That there might be dimensions of knowledge and of power that actually they can't handle, that are not good for them. Because they're not up to them. I said at the beginning that this original sin continues to echo through our lives. And I think that's true. For we see here dynamics that I reckon are familiar. The fixation on what is forbidden. The seductive appeal of what you can't have. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize, too, the way in which our judgment gets kind of messed up? Unimportant things become bigger than they should be. The promise of pleasure or of satisfying appetites 
seems to have an importance that is just beyond our good judgment. And things that are in, in a calmer moment we would know are, are clearly of great importance, like what we know about God and what is truly good and noble. They get pushed aside or, or they start to feel like they're not that important. And do you recognize, too, underneath it all, a desire for mastery a, and, a, and a disdain, an anger at any suggestion that some knowledge might be too much for you. Some choice might be above your pay grade. When you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, said the serpent. And they are. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Have you ever done something and immediately regretted it? I think that's what happens here. Because what results, what they get, is not an expansion of, of freedom, but the loss of it. What results is not new heights of honor, but constricting shame. They are filled with a, sh a sense of shame and guilt that is focused on their naked bodies, but that is not really about their bodies. We know that because even after they've made coverings, they still feel the need to hide from God. The Hebrew is, is very striking there. Literally, it says, they hid from the face of the Lord God. They don't want him to see them. The one who formed their bodies from the dust and from the rib, who breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, they're ashamed to be seen by him. But they can't stay hidden. In the verses that follow, the tragedy of what has happened is quickly exposed. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Do notice this emphasis on nakedness. It stands out. And it's worth dwelling on. I think it suggests pretty clearly that one of the basic things we have to deal with in life is a deep fear of being exposed. And this fear is kind of attached to our bodies. Sexuality is such a site of grief and difficulty for so many of us. In marriage preparation, I sometimes say to people that 
the problems we have with sex are often actually to do with underlying shame before God. That often comes as a shock to people, uh, but I think it's true. Notice also the tragedy and awfulness of what the man says, the woman you put here with me, as if this is God's fault somehow, as if this woman is a nuisance. Gone completely is the delight we saw in the last chapter. Do you remember? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Notice finally the honest confession that both the man and the woman make in the end. Both of them in the end, they say, and I ate. Did you notice that? Right at the end, and, and I ate. It's an acceptance of responsibility of guilt. Both of them do try to kind of shuck the responsibility as much as they can onto another, the man onto the woman, the woman onto the snake. But both in the end do recognise that they are guilty. They did, they, they did do this one thing they were commanded not to do. Friends, here is our condition. Not exactly our human condition, but our fallen condition. We stand before God, guilty and exposed. It would be great. It would be absolutely fantastic if we could say, that's got nothing to do with us. Like, oh, if we could look at this and go, bad luck them, that's not me. But the Bible says we can't do that. It says that Adam and Eve's failure was an apocalypse that we all live in the aftermath of. Humanity is haunted by a deep, dislocated sense of shame that arises from a primal failure. And each one of us repeats it. We lose sight of God and we see only our appetites. We lust for power and we resent restrictions. We want to be more and to have more, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. Each one of us. But one. But one. There are many places in the New Testament we could go to end this sermon, but the place I want to go is the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Because it's there that we see most clearly, I think, how Jesus succeeded where Adam and Eve failed. Have a look with me at the story in Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole story. won't take very long, but I think it's worth it. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he's quoting I think Psalm 91 here, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands 
so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is written, it is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Did you notice again the devil's playbook? He draws on our appetites. Jesus is hungry. Of course he's hungry. But hunger eats at you. Jesus also would want recognition, assurance. Wouldn't he want power? The devil also knows that we want mastery. And like with Adam and Eve, the devil also uses God's own words to form the temptations. He quotes the scriptures and he says, isn't this what God said? Surely he means this. The devil doesn't have his own words, he just uses God's. Isn't wouldn't God have meant this? The most important thing here, though, is not the similarities, but the differences. Adam and Eve were in the garden when they were tempted, surrounded by reminders of God's generosity and goodness to them. Jesus was in the desert. Adam and Eve were plentifully supplied with food. Jesus was bitterly hungry. Most strikingly, Adam and Eve put up almost no resistance they fall at the first hurdle. All it takes is a, is a whiff of doubt. Jesus is steadfast. Three times he is tempted. Three times he resists. And the temptations are fearsome. Adam and Eve were faced only with the suggestion that they might be being denied something. They might be missing out. For Jesus, the choice is between unimaginable power and authority and prestige on the one hand and on the other the way of the cross of suffering faithfully loss and humiliation for the sake of others and yet he did it he did it he resisted away from me satan for it is written Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If only Eve and Adam had said that. But do you realize that in that moment, Jesus became our savior? In that moment, in that victory of obedience and faithfulness, Jesus wrenched into existence a new possibility. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. This is chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. 
For just as through the disobedience of the one man, he's talking about Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. This is the magnificence of Jesus Christ. To overthrow Adam and Eve's failure and open a new path. And by giving himself up to death in our place, as this obedient one, he has made it a path for us too. A new way that leads to life rather than death. If only we will put our faith in him. If only we will trust him and be united with him and let him be our king. So I want to finish this evening with a simple challenge. Which legacy do you want to determine your life? Adam's legacy or Jesus' legacy? At one level, there is no escaping Adam's legacy. All of us are caught up in it. This primal failure echoes through our lives and it shapes us still. Our eyes have been opened. We know that we are naked. But it does not have to be decisive. The shame we know, the weakness we feel, the mistakes we make, they don't have to be the story that our lives tell in the end because another way has been opened. Those who trust in Jesus are given as his sheer gift to us. We're given a share in his legacy. We are allowed to share in what is due. Not what's due to us and the way we've lived our lives. But what is due to him. What is due to his perfect act of righteousness. Our sins are forgiven. Our shame is just cast away and we are justified. And that can be the final story of your life. So which legacy do you want? What do you want to be the story of your life? Let me invite you to choose Jesus and his legacy as we share the Lord's Supper together in just a moment. Why not put your faith in him? Why not renew your faith in him? Why not use it as a moment to cling to him? To let him be your king. We cannot pretend that we don't live after an apocalypse. And that each one of us repeats and wrestles with this primal failure in all of our lives. But thanks be to God... There was another who from within the wreckage of our humanity wrenched new life open by the sheer force of his obedience. Praise him. Trust him. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit 
naac.com.au.